0: You're listening to Revenue Vitals with Chris Walker. So welcome back, everyone, and a warm welcome to Chris Walker. I know he's been the top wish for many of you to join our, our uh, fireside chat sessions. Uh, And a warm welcome, Chris. Should I just give a short intro? Um, Founder and CEO of Refine Labs, progressive demand generation firm that challenges the status quo of B2B marketing. Also the host of the successful and super inspiring podcast Revenue Vitals that was formerly known as State of Demand Gen that I know that many of you listen to. And truly the demand generation guru in B2B SaaS. So a warm welcome, Chris.
1: Thank you all for having me. It's an honor to uh, to be here, to know that I've been highly requested to come and talk to you and look forward to doing whatever I can to help you all. I think that Joanne has some questions prepared, but I would love to get into at the end a lot of Q&A specifically of things that you're working on right now that you need some help with. Or um, Anyway, I'm here to provide as much value as I can over the next 45 to 60 minutes we have together. Thanks for having me.
0: Amazing. Thank you. So let's get started. And uh, when we run these fireside uh, chat sessions, I usually start our interviews with some quick warm up questions. And you can answer as quick and short as possible. Uh, so where where are you from?
1: I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire called Brookline, New Hampshire, population 4000. And it was actually a really nice upbringing. I loved it there. Had a nice group of friends and uh, played some sports. It was a good time.
0: Great. Thanks. And what's your current role?
1: Uh, as of today, I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Refine Labs. And we're also working on building and spinning out a, uh, SaaS product that does revenue analytics for Salesforce and other CRMs.
0: Exciting. And what's, what's your biggest achievement according to yourself?
1: I think the biggest achievement for me is, um exceeding what I thought was my potential. When I started my company in four years ago, I kind of got thrown into it. I uh, was asked to resign as a head of marketing at an early stage company. I didn't know what I was going to do. I took a couple of consulting jobs. I um, thought I was going to try and make some money off of it and then go invest in real estate. And what actually happened was so much more so much greater than I could have ever dreamed. I have an incredible team of people that work here. Um, I have tons of people that I've been able to help. I think probably thousands or potentially tens of thousands of people that I've been able to help through podcasts and live events and things like that. And didn't realize, and I think some people might resonate with this, I like. When I started, it, I didn't realize how unique and important my perspective was until I started sharing it with the world. And so I'd encourage you all, you all probably have really interesting ideas and you might actually be a little bit insecure or a little bit fearful of sharing some of those things. You don't know how people are going to react. I would encourage you to, uh, if you feel like you want to do that and help people to share your ideas with the world, cause you never know what you're going to get.
0: Love that. And actually, part of our marketing team mission is to be fearless and bold. So that really goes hand in hand with that. Um, wh- when do you enjoy work the most?
1: So I enjoy work the most in two different settings. They're, they're almost polar opposites. The first one is when I have an entire day of space. Sometimes I use like a Saturday or Sunday. Sometimes I travel to a like quote unquote vacation so I can sit somewhere on my own without being interrupted and just take my notebook and solve important problems and be creative and think about where we're going. So very visionary, sort of creative, open-ended work, I find very inspiring. And on the exact opposite side, actually being in on like a team all hands or a call and talking through the things that I, the things that we've learned, some of the challenges that we're facing as a organization, how we're going to address them. Um, I think both of those sort of sides of of leading a team of people and also doing a lot of solo creative work are both very inspiring to me
0: great thanks what makes a good leader
1: i thought about this one quite a bit because you sent me the questions in advance i think that vision and confidence are really important so being able to see where the world is going and inspire people to be able to go come along with you knowing that it's an important mission and going to make a big impact I think that clarity is super important. So not just about this big grand vision, but also what are the goals, how we're going to get there, who are accountable to things, what are we trying to achieve this quarter or this year? So some a lot of detailed clarity. I think accountability is huge as a leader. Um, every, every day, every quarter, I make hundreds of mistakes. Um, oftentimes, as the CEO, leadership is lonely. You don't hear... Uh, good job or thank you very often it's more expected so you have to be able to find the internal strength inside of you to not need that level of validation from your team and be able to actually pave forward on your own way also building a support system outside of your organization with like-minded people or things that have been very helpful for me um, but being able to take accountability because as a leader you're you have to make hard choices You're going to make quote unquote wrong choices in hindsight, but you're also making the choices that you're in the position to make and that other people may feel like they could make better than you, but often, you know, you get what I'm saying. And then lastly, trust, um, trust and building trust with people. And the way that I look at that is knowing that you have each other's back, that you would do what's necessary for your team. And so those are the, the four things that I reflect on as what makes a good leader.
0: Great, Uh, and I can really, yeah, can really uh, relate and agree with with all four of them. Um, What's one key ingredient to create a happy workforce?
1: I'm gonna double click on my previous answer. I think that uh, my organization is the is the most happy, inspired, powered when we have a strong, clear vision where we know where we're going. We know that it's important. We know that the market needs it. We know that it's going to be legendary work. I think that that really inspires and creates a happy workforce. It also, in a similar vein, I think that growth is really important, whether that's individual career growth, seeing the company grow, um, not even just in being promoted, but in learning. Like for the first several years of my career, and I'll probably talk about it as we get later into the talk. Um, I was, a, I was a mark, playing the marketing manager role at a company about seven years ago, but I was operating like a VP of marketing. I was learning so many new things. I was in, inside of board meetings. I was presenting at executive meetings. And so while I was making less than $100,000 a year with a pretty, you know, not a very inspiring title for what I was doing, um, the personal growth that I got from that actually propelled me to the, some of the things that I do today. So that could be career growth, salary growth, title, uh, just overall learning. All those things, I think, are, create a happy workforce as well.
0: Great. I, I heard someone saying that there are three levels of motivation. It's earning, learning, and impact. Would you agree with that?
1: I love that, yes.
0: And which one is most important to you? It seems like learning is a, is a key one.
1: Learning is what powers earning and impact. I think hmm. so, and I think I think some people get caught in trying to earn before they've learned.
0: What's your What's your motto in life?
1: You only fail if you quit.
0: Love it. Uh, and if you were to pick your top three favorite KPIs or metrics, what would those be and why?
1: I don't know if anyone on this call can predict my answer here, but um i don't have three favorite kpis so i think depending on what type of business problem that you're trying to solve you have all of these available metrics quantitative which is what most businesses look at but there's also this huge level of qualitative data that i think is very overlooked in b2b companies and so to say that there's Three of my favorite, I think, would be wrong. It's about using the available information that you have to make the best decision that you can for the specific problem you're trying to solve.
0: Okay, great. Thanks. Um, so who's the best leader you ever worked with?
1: So there was a CMO named Lise Halpern, who I worked with when I was the marketing manager at the time that I was speaking about that, and was able to grow and learn so much. She involved me in executive conversations. She set me up to present at board meetings for important projects that I was working on in the Amount of learning and professional and personal growth that I went through over those two years were incredibly impactful, and and then set me up to have the foundation to start my business. And so I'm forever grateful. We still text here and there. She's a great advisor to me right now as I work through I think, talking about building a network and a support system outside of your company. We still go back and forth on key problems that I'm trying to solve as a CEO, and I am uh, very grateful for everything that she's done for me.
0: Thank you. It's so important to have those. Role models, right, and those great leaders that you can turn to. For, it was, um,
1: it's also interesting as it was inspiring to watch a a CMO of a three hundred person, you know, company that IPO'd, then move on and become a CEO of an early stage startup, um, and see that path. Because I don't think we see it enough in from the marketing profession of going from you know marketing manager all the way to CMO and then moving into a CEO role. I expect, given the amount of ways that buyers are changing and how buyer behavior is changing that the path to ceo through marketing is real um so if that's something that you all aspire to do uh i'd encourage you to to use that path and and to watch what how other people have done it because it's real
0: completely agree and i think also both moving towards the cro role taking more of like the, the larger revenue perspective and the CEO role, definitely. And marketing is so much about strategy. And that's uh, a lot of the things that both CEO and CEO roles are all about. So I completely agree. Um, so demand generation, uh, of course, is the topic of today. Uh, but demand generation as a topic and definition, I, I'm finding lots of different definitions of this term. What, what would be your definition of demand generation?
1: So there's a reason that I rebranded my podcast from State of Demand Gen to Revenue Vitals. And the reason being is that the term demand generation is highly misunderstood by the market. It means so many different things to so many people. And honestly, I'm not sure that that definition is serving B2B companies anymore. And so I don't look at it as demand generation anymore. I break it into two buckets. You have demand creation and demand capture, and then sales is converting demand to close one revenue. And then you have expanding accounts inside of account management and customer success. So breaking it more into the objective and the goal, I think is super important. Um, When it comes to uh, account-based marketing, I think account-based marketing is just a a targeted level of demand creation and demand capture when done appropriately it's about selecting a level of accounts like if we're in if you're in a b2b organization no matter what you're doing some level of account based targeting it could be you could have a million account tam and just targeting all companies that have a cfo or you could be selling just to fortune 500 cpg brands and you have a hundred total named accounts that you're going after but either way uh In b2b you're selling business to business to an account Um, and so i think that the methodology of account-based targeting has existed long before the technology came around in 2014-15 we had our gold silver we were selling into hospitals we had our gold silver and bronze the gold accounts were the top 50 children's hospitals the silver accounts were ones that have between 50 and 500 beds and the bronze accounts were ones that had less than 50 beds based on the total available opportunity there. And sales reps were supposed to engage and close two gold accounts per year. They were supposed to, you know, deprioritize and bronze accounts were just ones that were coming inbound through our website and silver accounts were where we got a lot of the volume that drove a majority of the growth because you can't, you can't count on the predictability of closing the whales on a predictable basis. You need some level of volume as well. so. Um, I think that the theory of going after accounts in B2B makes total sense. I think that it's become very technology driven, which I don't think is necess- necessary in order to drive an effective strategy. And I do, I do agree with this move that a lot of ABM vendors uh, evangelize, which is moving from this high volume lead system to a intent data driven outbound system. I, I love that because then it empowers marketing to go out and not have to worry about getting 5,000 leads every quarter. They can figure out how are we going to drive accounts that want to buy? How are we going to educate the market? How are we going to design and dominate our category? The things that marketing actually, the things that really matter in marketing that other functions can't do. Um, So those are some of my, Thoughts on where we're at with ABM and demand gen?
0: Mm, great, thanks. And having listened to your story, it seems like you ran into demand gen almost by by chance. Could you share really briefly with the team how and when you started realizing the power of demand generation, or creation might be the better word?
1: Yeah. So um, I graduated with an engineering degree. I spent the first four years of my career doing uh, business consulting and product development operations, uh, marketing strategy areas like that. So I had a nice, very strong breadth of skills in the overall business foundation. How are we going to increase gross margins? How are we going to increase our throughput of manufacturing? How are we going to deliver just in time? How are we going to optimize our supply chain? How are we going to develop and launch this product? How are we going to make sure that we are building the right product for the market? So I had a really interesting foundation of customer research business foundations, building business cases, things like that. And then I entered my first venture funded company. It was a, a turning point in my career, a company called Vapotherm. They hired me as the marketing manager. I was hired to go to big sales meetings and be the subject matter expert with the sales team. We had a 50 person field sales team. So would like fly around the country and go and understand the clinical data when they were going to talk to a physician and support them in that. I was responsible for a, quote unquote key opinion leaders, which is like an early version of what influencer marketing ha- had been. And I was responsible for overall like sales enablement mess- and messaging and positioning for a specific segment we were going after. So that's what they hired me to do. And then I'm going out and vis- like going with the sales team and going to initial first calls. And doing that for the first 90 days, understanding what customers are saying, feeling the reactions, understanding after we go to this deal, are we getting a, are we getting a validation or a trial with this company? Is it going nowhere? What's happening? And what I realized is that we have 50, peop- 50 salespeople in all over the country that are driving sometimes three hours to go to a meeting. Sometimes they're flying in a plane in the, to go to their territory to go to a meeting. And they get to that meeting and they're talking to people that are not ready to buy these people Mm -hmm. are taking the meeting as a common courtesy. They're taking a meeting so that they can learn, but they do not, they are not educated and they're not ready to buy. And then we're taking a salesperson, not a clinical professional, trying to convince them to buy. That was the insight that I had. Then I go back to HQ. I start looking at our Salesforce data. Our sales cycles are 212 days to sell a 30, 30, 30,000 a year contract on average. Our win rates of outbound meetings are 6%. Our customer acquisition costs is super high based on the high investment of sales. We spend very little on marketing. We do no over the top demand generation to educate customers, aside from webinars to get leads. And then I put on, I've thought about this the whole way and I totally recommend it to everyone that I put on my CEO hat. And I said, if I, I'm, I know I'm a marketing manager, but if I was the CEO of this company, what would, what would the number one problem that I'm trying to solve be? We got to figure out how to do digital demand so that our sales team is talking to people that want to buy so that we have higher sales velocity, better win rates. We lower our customer acquisition cost, and we grow faster. And then I went on a mission for two years at that company to figure out everything. I would never done this before. I'd never used HubSpot before I install HubSpot. I integrate it with Salesforce. I look at all the data. I build the reports. I start figuring out how to run Facebook ads. We were running Facebook ads to deliver clinical trials to a direct accounts. I remember this because you would I would go into Facebook late at night and you couldn't like build set and put an account list in there. I had to search every single hospital from our silver account list, five hundred of them, and select them <laughs> manually. And then I would target ABM software's out there, but I they I didn't need it. You could just do this natively in Facebook and I would pick all the hospitals. I would pick the job titles, the physicians, the respiratory therapists, the nurses that we wanted to target. And then I would run clinical trial data, videos from our podcast about physicians talking about how they use the product, case studies of hospitals that have had success. We rebuilt the website for conversion. And over the next two years, went from driving 0% of revenue at our company through the website to 33%. And when we had 33% percent of revenue coming through the website, sales cycles on through the website were 66 days instead of 212. Hmm. Yeah win rates were 40 percent of qualified opportunities instead of six percent sales velocity was significantly higher creating a an incredible path to growth of net net new acquisition of accounts which also allows sales reps to go and think about instead of having to figure out how am i going to hit the quota with net new accounts this quarter how can i go out and partner with our csms and get customers to use the product more which is going to drive expansion and so it created a really interesting growth a flywheel model that I figured out. And, and when I left that company, I recognized, I thought that every company did it this way and I was just doing what everybody did. And I went and joined another company. I realized, huh, seems like every company is doing this stuff that I feel like I have a better way to do that. I figured out, let me go and start a company about how to do this. So it is, I, I, I walked into it and I, um, I walked into it because there was a clear business problem, and when you put on your CEO hat, then you you think about what are the key business problems, not a, how am I going to improve my click through rate on this campaign. So yeah,
0: love that, that really I taking that kind of like strategic view on things and looking at the bigger picture instead of just like that small area that is maybe traditionally marketing.
1: Another thing I'll note on that, that I just think is super interesting. In order to actually, in order to actually get the company on board with this. Right. Cause like in theory, it makes total sense, but this is 2016. So like the executives of this company are like, what we're going to, we're going to sell medical, expensive medical devices to emergency medicine physicians using Facebook ads, you're an idiot. <laughs> and so one of the things that I did to get the company on board, to give me $5,000 to run the initial test was that I did a market research survey with customers. I'd already heard all this stuff qualitatively. I was out in the field. I heard what influencers do you listen to? Where do you get information? How do you want to make purchase decisions? I pulled that back. I asked the questions in a large scale survey. I sent it out to all of our gold and silver accounts with the key people in it. I collected data. We got 600 responses in the survey. And it said, "Where do you do you use social media? To learn about these things? Yeah, we use YouTube, we use Instagram, we use this. Who do you listen to? We listen to this person, this person, and this person. I immediately knew who are the people that we need to have on our podcast. Who are the people that we need to have to contract to go out and speak at conferences on behalf of our company about how they use the product because our customers trust them. Which of these channels do we need to use? I know B2B is all about LinkedIn now, but at that point, like people were saying, YouTube, Facebook, um, and then LinkedIn was third. We asked questions about at what point do you want to talk to a sales rep? And, and what things do you want to accomplish before you talk to a sales rep? I want to know the pr- I want to know pricing. I want to talk to a colleague at another facility that uses your product. I want to understand the clinical data, and then I want to talk to your sales rep about a, a trial. And our go-to-market strategy was just skipping all those steps and getting them right into a meeting with a sales rep, bef- with before they had the clinical data, before they talked to a colleague and other things like that. And so by using the insights directly from customers, just saying how do you want to buy, who do you listen to, things like that. And then actually listening to them and forming the strategy, regardless of whether it's easier or harder for the company to do it, I think is a huge insight too. If you ask your customers, they'll tell, exactly, they'll tell you exactly the way to do it, but it's often hard in the company to change, to accommodate what customers want. And what I've found is that if you just figure out how to do everything that your customer wants, it oddly works out really well for you too. So this isn't appra-
0: a so really taking kind of like ownership of the relationship with the customers, right? Like going to the source and getting those insights.
1: I like people are going to probably disagree with me on this, maybe not on this call, but people that listen to it afterwards or things like that. But like, I find that I think the definition of marketing is understanding your target customer better than anyone else in the company and then being able to speak on their behalf about how we should execute our go to market strategy and how we develop products based on the insights that we get from customers. And so that's like, that's marketing to me. It's become a lot more tactical and a lot more short term over the years, especially in B2B and SaaS and technology companies. But if you go look at a lot of the strongest marketers I know were, they didn't even call it product marketing. They just called it marketing in a manufacturing company or a medical device company or things that operate a little bit more quote unquote traditional or more fundamental based. Um, And it's weird how, the tactics become very easy once you have the fundamentals in place.
0: Yeah, love that. So I'm uh, I'm a bit mindful about time here. Time flies, but I know that you have some thoughts on inbound versus outbound, and you speak about a term that you called um, all bound. Could you just share your thoughts on all bound? Because I love that kind of like section that I if if I wrote about or read it or heard it i'm not sure but i loved it either way
1: yeah for for sure first off all bound is not my term other people used it way before me so i'm just sort of like communicating what companies are already talking about or doing all bound being that like the the key point here is that we need to get rid of this level of departmental level credit to defend roi that's what that's what all bound is meant to do um, it gets rid of this at, the attribution touch points. It gets rid of like, Oh, like this person went to our trade show booth, but then we did an outbound call. What should we give credit to the SDR? And a lot of the, what I think is very, uh, unproductive things that happen inside of companies driven by the metrics and the goals and how they drive budget. So companies are adopting more of what they call an all bound model, which is that it doesn't act, We have a set of target accounts and it doesn't matter how they get into our pipeline, but we just want to be able to get into their pipeline. And then we have to be able to look at ROI and impact in a different way, which I think is smart. I think the thing that's missing is the idea that you need an underlying framework to understand what are actually the best ways for buyers to get into our pipeline. And the insight that we have here is that like, if you look at an outbound meeting or a meeting that you could source by giving a $200 gift card away, or if you look at a meeting that's a qualified buyer that comes to your website and asks for a demo, Or if you have someone that went to your webinar or downloaded your content and then you cold call them the sales velocity of all those different areas are going to be way different and all bound models right now don't account for that and so by using the what we call a pipeline source what is this some people call it tipping point what is the source that drove the sales action that got someone into pipeline and using that as a surrogate measure for buying intent to then look at the metrics to just make better decisions about where do we want to optimize and where do we want people to come through. Um, And when you look at that, some of the things that you see over and over is like when we drive a sales action off of a content download, we win one out of a thousand of those quote unquote MQLs or leads or whatever you want to call them. If we had an ABM, like there was intent data, we cold called someone, maybe we'll win those at one to three percent. If someone filled out a demo request and they're qualified and we get them into a meeting, maybe we'll win those at 5 to 12%. And by knowing the win rates and the ACVs and calculating pipeline velocity between those things, it allows the revenue team to say, hey, actually, like we don't want to drive sales actions for content downloads. A lot of people know that now, but I've been looking at that data for almost five years and a lot of people didn't know about it five years ago hey, like the people that ask for a demo win at the highest rate, they have the best sales velocity. Let's try and figure out what's driving these people to go here and ask for a demo. Why don't we ask them either in a, on a sales call through self-reported attribution, through market research surveys, what is triggering them to come and ask for a demo so we can go and do more of that? Um, so those are some of the thoughts that I have on Allbound. I share a lot of information on LinkedIn, and we've done quite a bit of research on that. We've also published a framework about our uh, how we use pipeline sources, not as a way to attribute credit to departments, but to help the revenue team look at the system overall and decide where should we focus and where should we prioritize to get the best sales velocity for our team.
0: I love that. Thanks. We'll make sure to check out that framework. And we also actually started implementing that that you recommended in your podcast, that form where you ask, like, how did you hear about us with that um the open form? So we are we were piloting that in the Nordic markets, so and now we're running it out for for all the companies. So that's uh, really looking forward to those insights.
1: What have you learned so far? You rolled, you rolled it out across the you did a pilot and you rolled it out across the whole company. So I assume that you found positive impact or at least insights that were valuable. What are some of the things that you found?
0: Yeah, for sure. Someone who would like to share some insights. Yeah.
2: I can uh I can jump in. So this is gonna be my question. So maybe I, I can
0: um... Yeah, let's go over to the QA. <laughs> let's do wait, it,
2: yeah. wait, Are we perfect.
0: sure? Yeah.
2: <laughs> because uh, my question was actually based on this. So uh we rolled it out in the Nordics uh in Q4 and then uh, mainly because uh, people including me uh were worried it might hamper um conversion, making it compulsory, etc. Um, and it didn't really show much of an impact either way there, so we went with it. Um, in terms of insights in that pilot, it was a, it showed a lot of people who heard about us from actually using the product in a previous employer or like their networks, which I think is really useful. Um, through, I would say it wasn't maybe like a silver bullet. So a lot of people said internet or Google, mm-hmm. which is, you know, thanks, <laughs> but I guess that's fair enough. Um, my question about this actually was, so we, we, we're really collecting it at, at a much bigger scale now across all of our markets. Um, and Adran on the team is gonna lead a project to like dig into that data in February and, and and like get actionable insights from it. Do you have any good examples of how to do so? Like what um, we've looked at, we've, we've already in the, in the pilot, we looked at, for example, based on the reason we put them into buckets as best we could, and then looked at how many of them became opportunities. Uh, but yeah, do you have any like top one or two ways to like put that data to good use so it doesn't become just another form field over time, but we're we're really getting value from
1: it? 100%. Yeah, let's talk through it. So first off, I just want to highlight for people, we've done these tests as well. The number one objection to this is that it's going to negatively impact form conversion rates. And I you found that it didn't. If you're interested, would love to uh, work together and publish some of that data to give people more confidence to actually do this because it's the number one reason people say no. So if you're interested in that, I'd, I'd love to collaborate. The second thing is that, um, that you have two things when you get this data. You have the qualitative insights. What are the people write in the in the form? And then you get the quantitative. How do I convert that or bucket it or categorize it to show some type of chart and make quantitative level decisions? On the qualitative, we what we do at my company is that when the person converts, we use marketing automation to Slack automation. And we push that into a channel that everybody in the company sees. So it's going to show the name, company, company size, what they wrote in the submission. Uh, you know, if you ask other fields, what product are they interested in, things like that. And the entire company can go and see, where are people hearing about us? So that's just a qualitative way to share what you're learning, to get it outside of the CRM and get it into the... That's how executives start to see, oh, these people are referring us business. Oh, our podcast actually is working. So that's just a, a great, a great, uh, easy way to start to get the more of the company level seeing that stuff. Our sales team loves it because they can go and look at the person and if they say, I heard if they write a long thing I heard about you on the podcast, I've been listening for years, they know they're going to have a good conversation about that. So our sales team likes getting getting that information served up as well on this, like, how do we quantitatively do this? We are launching a Salesforce application in March that actually does all of this. So it'll take the data that you get, the string of data, it'll automatically categorize it into preset buckets based on what the person, so it'll look at the data. Oh, you said podcast, you said LinkedIn, you said this person, it'll categorize it as a referral or podcast or wherever it goes. It'll connect it from the leader to the contact onto the opportunity object. It'll then um, be able to visualize all that data for you, both at like the overall level, as well as at the program level. So you could build, we have dashboards out of the box of like, here's our LinkedIn program Here's how many, how much pipeline we're driving off of people that said they heard about us on LinkedIn. Here's our podcast program. Here's the amount of people that are say how much pipeline we drove, how much revenue, how many conversions we drove from people that said they heard about us on the podcast. So if you're interested in that, um, we'll be launching a beta program in March that does all of that for you at your, vo- I assume at your volume, there's like, you're probably trying to do it in a spreadsheet right now, which can work. We did it in a spreadsheet to begin with, and then we found so many companies have this issue of like, how do I actually make this actionable that we built a product around it? So I uh, would be happy to share that with you if that'd be helpful. And that's for Salesforce. So if uh, only works on Salesforce CRM right now, any follow up to that? We'd love to keep going. If you have more, you want to go deeper.
0: Great. Thanks. thanks. And, and yes, we use uh, Salesforce. So that would be, that would be interesting to look into for sure. Cool. Great. Thanks. So let's open up for more questions. Who would like to go next?
3: Hi, Chris. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm uh, from Germany here. Um, I listened to your podcast and I would like to know, because you said, well, you don't do Gartner, for instance, why don't you do Gartner? First question. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so if you install self-reported attribution and then you look at what customers say, Not a single customer in the past two years has submitted and said they heard about us through Gartner. We don't do it, but we also install it for a lot of companies that pay a lot of money to Gartner to do it. Um, And rarely get Gartner or Forrester from that thing. At the super enterprise level, I totally understand that it's still valuable and people use that as a hedge or a risk mitigation to say like, you can't fire me for buying that tool. Gartner said it was the right thing to buy, right? So I get that it makes sense in enterprise where people are trying to hedge their careers. I think as you look at the transition from a native analog buyer, people that are above 35 that didn't grow up with the internet versus a native digital buyer, people that grew up with the internet and are digitally native, the way that they get information, the, what sources they trust and the way that they buy are significantly different. The amount of budget and wallet that those people that are in the digital digitally native bucket own now is greater than 50% of overall B2B marketing budgets and how they make decisions. And so we're going to continue to see like the, the prediction from very smart people is that analyst firms won't exist in 15 years. It'll take a while, but their target buyer and how they drive are actually moving and will retire in the next 15 years. And the people that are native digitals do not use those to make buying decisions. So that's sort of like, that's the customer reason of why we don't recommend it. If you're at the super enterprise level and you're selling seven figure contracts or for whatever reason makes sense to do it. I totally agree. The second piece is that when you use that, you basically outsource your category design to an analyst firm versus deciding what are we going to be? How are we going to be different? So some companies that take on a category design strategy will not adopt like a Gartner or Forrester thing because they try and bucket you into a category that perhaps you don't belong in and then do a check mark of features. About it, So it's deciding whether you want to be best or different is another uh, key decision about leveraging analyst firms. Those are some of my thoughts. Like the, the reality is, is it worth the money? For some companies, it is. And I think that every, every leader, every CMO or, or revenue leader should be able to make that decision for themselves, leveraging their own customer data, as well as the impact on revenue. But for other a lot of other companies, it's not the right move. Um, So that's sort of how I and no matter what the tactic is, email, SEO, analyst firms, influencer marketing, podcast, things like that. It's about understanding your target customer and then deciding what uh, out of all the tools I have in my tool belt out of with the budget that I have with the competitive landscape that we have, what are the best things that I should be able to do? And that's a, a individualized company decision. I try not to make blanket statements unless they're very customer data driven. And so the customer driven thing is that we we rarely hear people saying, you know, I saw you on this quadrant and that's why I'm buying.
3: Interesting. Thank you. Of
1: course. The second question yeah. asks,
3: um, would be how would you uh, create an awesome event like you, you said in your podcast and um, what, what would be special about it?
1: When you say event, do you mean like some of the recurring events that I do or some like big like conference or does it not, not matter?
3: Uh, something that you create yourself. So it could be whatever you see as, as the best fit for, let's say, your uh, prospect.
1: Got it. Yeah. So like our the thing that's worked best for our company the entire time that I've been running it is weekly recurring events that then become a long form audio podcast that then create a movement around an idea or a vision for the future that then a community becomes behind and becomes integrated that then drives a lot of other people to share the ideas in social, which then sort of like it creates a snowball effect where You start, even if they're not going to be your customer right now, they believe in where you see the world is going. Um, And so we found that to be highly effective. Some of the key ingredients for success there, you got to have somebody that like is truly an expert with your target customer or the attendees of the event that you can help them um, not just around your product, but around their entire profession and career. You must be able to drive positive career growth for people, regardless of whether they're your customer or not. So when people get promotions, when people start their own business, listening to my advice, when people switch jobs, because we had a 10 minute conversation on my podcast and after going through it, I was like, you should, you're way better than this. You should find a different job And they go find a better job and they get a raise and they're way happier. Those are the, those are the real intangibles that make a, make this type of event helpful. Measuring the success of it based on how many people come back and repeat visit, I think is a really interesting way to look the goal is to create an event where somebody has it in their calendar every week. And they say, that is the most important thing for my either personal or professional or company growth that I need to attend that and be there every week. I think that's like the real aim of what you're trying to do in a recurring virtual event. I think a lot of companies get caught in, in the number of live attendees, which then translates into the number of MQLs or leads that they've been trained, that that's that's the goal. We need to create a big virtual conference and get 5,000 attendees. Our live events get somewhere between 100 and 350 people live every week. So it's like not a substantial amount, but we do it every week, not once a year. And then 50,000 people listening to it on the podcast after we publish it. And so also thinking about the, the dynamics between live consumption and asynchronous consumption, where most people will prefer asynchronous consumption. And so we prioritize in the live event using it as a medium to create amazing content, not to sell to people that are on the event. And then we get most of the value in terms of like, quote unquote, demand creation or brand affinity or however you want to look at it. We get most of that impact through asynchronous distribution through social media, podcasts, YouTube, other places like that.
2: It's Thank also way
1: it's also way less expensive from like an oper- and way way more simple from an operational perspective than creating a road show and doing a bunch of live events. Before I started the podcast, I actually did a lot of live events, so I would travel to Miami and LA, and then we were going to do Texas and a couple other places, but COVID happened, so that kind of got shut down. So then we moved to the virtual format. And the virtual format i found to actually be way more impactful way less expensive and easier to operate so i think that you want to have a blend between physical hybrid and virtual Um, but i think would lean a lot more virtual at the beginning to build a proof of concept that hey we're doing something that people love
0: brilliant thank you do we have time for one or two more questions
1: i don't have a hard stop so we can go five or ten over if you'd like
0: amazing so who would like to go next Hi Anya from Hamburg as well. Uh, I think
3: you said um, once that personas or the concept of personas might be like outdated a bit. So, and I found that interesting because it's kind of what every marketer would maybe like. Uh, it's the minimum or, or like yeah, in the strategic process, it's like basic. But um, so, I would love to hear about this a little bit more. Like, why do you think that? Or yeah.
1: Totally. yeah. So, so, um, in this statement, it's possible that like I just process this in my brain and overlook it. So I just want to hedge here that like, it's possible that I'm actually building personas in my head, but not writing them down or things like that. It's possible. I actually don't think that's the case. I think what's changed for me is that the, the goal, and especially when you're selling B2B is to create a message that matters to the business. And if you create a message that matters to the business, then smart people in the business will say, Hey, that's going to be good for our business. And it doesn't matter what their job title is. We have that come to work with Refine Labs. It's like, you know, the typical title that if you think about our company would be like a VP of demand gen. And who's coming in to talk to us? CEOs, CROs, CFOs have come inbound to us. Um, You then you get a lot of the general, like a lot of the spread out marketing titles. But the, the interesting thing is that we don't, the message that we have doesn't change to the market. I'm putting out one message. Attribution is broken. Companies should consider it. Dark social is real. People are buying in different ways. Companies need to digitally transform what they're doing with like a lot of analog sales meetings is no longer productive or effective. We need to think about how we budget and measure ROI differently. Those types of messages are not specific to any persona inside of the business. What it is specific to is anyone smart that sees those pain points inside of their company from their vantage point is going to be able to take that and direct it to the person that's actually going to make the decision. And so it's a little bit of a different, a little bit of a different mindset. It may, it could, it's possible that it could be business dependent, but like I struggle sometimes to think about like a company going out that sells marketing technology software and is gonna go out and then build a persona around the CTO or the CISO, and then market to that person when they don't care at all about the marketing technology. Um, they could be a blocker. I get the rationale of why people do it, but the reality is that if, the, if the, you make a, business, a rational business argument about why your product is needed and it gets distributed to the people that can make the decisions, it's interesting too. the distribution of like I put out my content and then how it gets to people is not that they see it on LinkedIn. Usually it's what happens is somebody smart in their company sees it and then forwards it to the person that they know can make the decision that happens inside of Slack. It happens in email. It happens in other dark channels that we can't track, but that's how people get it. I think that there could be a place for personas. I think that it's a it could be a good medium to share the information across the company so that people are aligned. I choose to do it differently, which is that instead of building a persona document, I go out of my podcast and I interview CMOs for an hour. Then people in my company go and listen to the questions that I'm asking to a CMO and then get that in a much more deep, rich format than, you know, CMOs care about growth and they need to, they're working on 10% lower budgets this year. They gotta be cost efficient. Let's use cost efficiency in our messaging. I think you just, there's, I think there are more, effective ways today to disseminate information to other people in the company about the target customer than using a written persona document so those are my thoughts i don't have a don't have a hard stance on it but i do think that there there's work to be done and how what the overall goal of a persona is and then if there's a better way to do it today
2: true
3: like really interesting thank you
1: of course thanks for asking your question we can do uh two, two or three more probably.
3: Yeah, I have a, a question because I totally agree with you. It would be best to have a product that sells itself, basically. Like That would be the easiest way to move forward. Um, but I also feel like sometimes like I'm a, a product marketer that I, I'm on the receiving end and I try to give them as much insight as I can, but they talk with our customers a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Where do you feel like marketing could be most beneficial for a product?
1: Mm, could you ask that question a different way just so I can make sure that I understand you correctly?
3: Like, sometimes I'm from like me as a product marketer. Mm -hmm. I take a lot of what they are releasing. They talk a lot with the customers. I question them about what are we releasing? Why are we doing this? Why is this important? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I feel like I'm also always at the receiving end. Like, what is, how could we as marketing benefits them as well and not just have like receiving all the time, but also giving?
1: Got it. So, um, in, let me just reflect this back to you in your seat, you're not influencing the product roadmap, you just get what comes out for the product. And then your job is to figure out how to move it downstream to customers. Am I sort of thinking about that? Right. And are you asking about how do we, uh, more influence the product direction or am I way off?
3: Um, no, I think that's um, uh, something that we do help with. Uh, so we see like this, this is happening in this market and that is happening in this market. But um, you know, in the end, it's all about them. It's like then they start prioritizing and doing things, etc. But also in terms of like, it's hard to get them excited about some of the marketing stuff that we do. Almost mm-hmm. like how do we get them to um, be excited about marketing, to be more proactive towards us, and to also you know start. Yeah, that's basically...
1: Yeah, so uh, receiving this stuff, but how do we sort of flow back insights, right? I think that's what we're getting at. So I think the um, what I mentioned to Mark about setting up the Slack notifications so that ongoing people are seeing this is what's actually driving people that want to buy. These are marketing or referrals or other activities that are impacting that. I think that taking a... um, a huge level of ownership on regardless of whose responsibility it is in the company to deeply understand customers, I think is a huge impact so that you can actually feed that back Uh, and the way that I go about it. You could start a podcast on your own, say it's a personal project and you just want to go and learn, go and interview people that you're targeting. How do you actually go out and interview those people and understand things about what they are going through, what they need, what they prioritize, do it in a podcast format? You find some, a couple of interesting things that are different than what your product team is finding. You then go take it, you do a large scale market research survey with those customers. So you have a more quantitative, substantial sample size, and then you feed that back to, feed that back to the team. So in companies, and I, it always hurt me early in my career because it was always based on my opinion. And when I stopped having it be my opinion and I started presenting, here's what a large set of customers are saying, it always worked better.
0: Yeah, product managers love data too. So I yeah. think <laughs> it would work out, thank you. Of course. Do we have any last question?
1: I think you had yes, one more. Okay, cool.
0: I have one more, Let's sorry, it took me time to unmute. Amazing. Um, so I'm actually very interested in like, diving into it and like talking to customers and doing exactly what you just described. Um there are then two questions for them that
3: you just mentioned. So one of them was who do they want to listen to and who
0: would I want to have on a podcast? And um, the other one is um to ask them why they converted on a certain page. Are there any other questions that you would ask customers to get more insights that I can ask?
1: So uh, I think it's the questions that you ask are totally dependent on what the overall business goal that you're trying to accomplish. So some of the things that I've done is if I'm really focused on optimizing the buying experience, a lot of my questions are going to be focused on what, what things do you want to accomplish before you talk to a sales professional? Like what sources of information do you rank order these sources of information on what you trust the most versus what you trust the least? It'd be interesting if you did that one and you had go back to the Gartner reference and you go and do that thing and you have eight choices and you got like recommend recommendations from peers, content from thought leaders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you got, you know, analyst firms, EG Gartner and Forrester, and you see how people rank them in terms of trustworthiness. That would be an interesting data point to have when you make your decision about whether to do that or not. So you have like, you have one that could be about buying experience. There's a whole nother one about like competitive landscape and positioning, which are the, like, which of these brands do you know, have, which ones have you heard of, how did you hear about each individual one? Do you use one of these products? Which one are you, if you don't use one, which one of them are you most likely to buy if you go into this purchase decision? Why haven't you considered this category yet? What is the status quo that you're using? You know, if you're not using this, what are you doing instead to accomplish this? So you can have a whole nother one on like brand positioning, category messaging, things like that. Um, you could do uh, like the one that you mentioned about who do you who do you listen to? I think is part of almost like is not necessarily buying experience, but it's part of the buying journey. So that could be part of a buyer experience survey. Those are some of the examples of ones that I've done. And then the last thing that I'll say is that you get the best ideas to do quantitative survey research from doing qualitative, like one to one research. So, just going in there and having convert whether it's on a podcast, whether it's in an interview, whether that's virtual or on site. I like, uh, back in the day, I would always go on site, whether that's to hospitals or, or manufacturing facilities or all the other types of industries that I've worked. Because you get to see what it actually looks like inside, you get to see what the day to day looks like. You can look up on the whiteboard or the screen and see what are the metrics that this company is tracking in their manufacturing facility. Um, you can get the feel of how it feels. So there's um, on-site is great. I understand that it's sometimes prohibitively expensive, or you know, flying from Hamburg to LA to do a customer visit doesn't make sense. So I totally understand those things. But you can, through the one-to-one open-ended qualitative research where you don't have an objective, you're just trying to learn and you sort of follow the breadcrumbs that people give you. So you can, you ask a question then you can ask why, how, when, how do you measure that? How do you feel about that? You can go deep and then you go and do that six times. And then you start to see a pattern, huh? When I ask this question, everyone's saying that they, they, you know, don't agree with this goal that they have, but that is their goal. We got, there's some interesting research here. Now let's go and figure out, okay, so this goal is the issue. Now let's go back and survey a hundred of our target accounts and say, how do you, how do you measure this specific thing? Then what we can come out of it is a research data point. 78% of companies still measure this way, even though 79% of VPs of marketing don't agree with it. And so then you start to, then you, you might have a message or a position that your company can stand on to drive your category or differentiation. So... Those are, I kind of went in some different directions, but I hope there was a couple of nuggets in there for you that you could use.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to start, thanks. Sounds like curiosity it really is uh, key here to really 100%, dig yeah. into the customer needs. Okay, so a couple of questions to wrap it up. It's already 10 past, but um, which successful scale-up journeys inspires uh, you?
1: So I honestly don't spend a lot of time looking at what other companies are doing. I could make up a company for you, but it's just not how I go about it. I spend all my time looking at what customers are doing, and then I try and reverse engineer what it means for me. Uh, maybe this will sound like selfish, but I think that the way that my company has been built is an interesting journey. We didn't. We have not raised any venture funding. We grew rather quickly. We built it on the foundation of a lot of uh, new, like sort of new. Like When I started the podcast and I started on LinkedIn, people were really like, why don't you go hire five SDRs? What you're, This is in 2019. What you're doing is dumb. It's never going to work. You think posting on LinkedIn is going to help you build your company? That's never going to work. That's what people said. So I think being bold and having conviction and trying things that aren't accepted or haven't been put in a Gartner report are some of the things that I admire most about uh, marketers and companies.
0: Thanks. And if you were to leave us with one key piece of advice on our growth journey, what would that be?
1: This is more of a personal angle. I don't, I don't know about everybody, but 2022 was a tough year for me. We went through an explosive amount of growth in 2021 and part of 2022, the economy started to decline beginning. We started feeling it in April. Um, We've had to make a lot of strategic adjustments at our company. I've had to make a lot of hard choices that sometimes weren't the right choices but had to be made that in hindsight weren't. And what I've learned over this period of time is that the hard times are where the growth happens. And when you reach a point where you feel like you want to give up, is right before you have a breakthrough to move to the next phase of your career. And so that's uh, that's what I've learned, and that's what I'd leave you with. When things are easy, every, everybody's a winner. Things are easy. Money's flowing. It's easy to get customers. Everyone's happy. What matters for leadership is, is what you do when things get hard. So that's what I'll uh, leave you with today. I hope that helps some people. Um, I hope that what I've shared today has been helpful for some of you. I haven't done one of these to a company in quite quite a bit of time with the holidays in Thanksgiving, and I appreciate you inviting me to join it because it reminded me of how much I love doing these. I feel so inspired after spending uh, some time with you, so I appreciate you inviting me and engaging and asking great questions. So, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, and I I think that we can just say we echo that inspiration a lot. I have a thousand of ideas that I want to implement straight off, but uh, I have to. Uh sleep on it and prioritize a bit but thank you so much for joining us such a, such a pleasure having you here
1: thanks everyone and enjoy the
0: rest of your day you thank as well you. bye everyone bye It's chris
1: hey, thank, thank you, you. Chris. thank, thank you, you so
0: much chris